welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker, and as always, I'm joined by some excellent panelists. Today, we've got Dave Elton, president of Blue Line Studios, Sebastian Park, who I've not yet had the pleasure of talking with here, a co-founder of Infinite Canvas, and Maria Gillies, who I have spoken to but has changed jobs over time here, uh, is now the product director at Pixion Studios, if I have that correct. Yeah, Pixion Games. Is games the same oh, as Studios? Yeah. No, I, I actually had it written as games, too. That's the sad part, is, is I could have just re- read what I wrote. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's not RAM. You can just download more RAM. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Or I'll download the RAM doubler from RAM.com. It's so nice to be back here. It's been such a long time, I feel. And Devin, you're an amazing host. I listen to the episodes Thanks. every week, and it's really good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad someone does. I I don't get a chance to listen to them. So <laughs> cool. We'll send well, you some notes later. Yeah, exactly. We've got some good topics today, so we'll we'll get right into them just so we can make sure we have plenty of time to talk about them. Uh, we've uh, got Keyword Studios acquisition of Hard Suit Labs, which we'll get into in just a moment. Uh, Tears of the Kingdom, no surprise here, though outpacing. Hogwarts legacy sales, a- Amazon continuing to go after their their everlasting journey uh, for MMOs, and then Google Bard uh, continuing to try and compete in AI, and uh, some interesting stuff around cross-platform gaming. So yeah, with that being said, uh, let's just get right into the Keyword Studios acquisition of Hardsuit Labs. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so the, the top line is that uh, Keywords has acquired Hardsuit Labs. Now, Hard uh, Hard Suit Labs uh, was founded in 2015, uh, and they previously have done a lot of work as a support studio. Uh, So they've worked for companies like Activision, Tripwire, uh, Microsoft, Hyra Studios, uh, and on platforms ranging from console to PC, and they even did some some PSVR work. Uh, Currently, they're apparently working on uh, some Fortnite projects, so working on Fortnite Creative, Fortnite Save the World, Um, but now... Keywords has come along and, and scooped them up. So for me, Keywords is one of those interesting companies in that they've been doing a lot of acquisition over the last little while. That I think in some ways a little bit under the radar. So you know, there's a lot of um, you know uh, headlines being put towards the Embracer Group or Stillfront in terms of their acquisitions. But um, you know, since Keywords was founded back in 1998, so they've been around for a long time. But they've acquired like 67 companies since their beginning. And their focus is around sort of the support side of game development. So they'll offer services around QA, player support, uh, localization, but they'll also help with even codev and full development. Um, so I mean, they're they're a one of those behind the scenes companies inside the game studio, uh, games uh, business that certainly is uh, you know reaching that behemoth stage. Um, and even just in the last year, they've done eight acquisitions uh, around the world, including uh, you know, one close to my heart uh, in Vancouver. Um, and they've got something like fifty over 50 studios active right now and over 6,000 employees. So 
Uh, congrats, uh, congratulations to Hardsuit. Uh, sounds like you've joined one very large company that's uh, doing a lot of work for everyone behind the scenes. Given the, the amount of acquisitions we've had, even with like the, the big M&A season over, I, I kind of feel like at some point we're going to need this huge org chart uh, just to know where companies <laughs> sit at some point, right? Uh, because it's it's been like, like you said, like they've been doing it for so long. Uh, we we kind of forget these companies exist because we're so focused on Embracer and Stillfront. Um, so I, I do hope though, at the end of the day, like this is good for these companies or at least enough of them for it to be worthwhile that we're not just seeing everyone kind of get gobbled up. And I do imagine... Like even those smaller ones will probably continue yeah. in the near future. Um, I think the end goal for for keywords is really to be that one stop shop that they hope that they can engage with companies around the world. Um, everything from you know those people that are just looking for that tiny bit of help uh, if they're uh, you know looking for someone to help fill in maybe a couple of key staff positions. Uh, all the way through to uh, you know being that that trusted co dev partner um, where they're you know where they're doing a, a good chunk of the work inside of the games, but uh, but they've also stated that they they don't want to publish under their own name. They don't want you know the game name to be you know Keyword Studios was the developer. Um, they want to stay a little bit behind the scenes, and uh, and I think they've done a good job of that. Maybe too good for for some people to actually. You know, be fully aware of what what they do inside the industry. Well, I hope there's something like Glassdoor kind of thing as well, uh, giving uh, some some uh, insight into whether or not these acquisitions are long term working out for these companies. So that uh, you know, when they're considering it, right? Like a company like Keywords comes to you and is like, "Hey, we want to buy you." They could see, "Oh, you know, actually, you're a good person to work for. Uh, we should do mm-hmm. that." You know, like it, it just reminds me of the the whole Playtika thing with Rovio, right? Where where Rovio is just yeah. like, I don't know about that, man. I don't know if we want to be acquired <laughs> by you because they had a reputation, right? And so with these ones that are maybe a little stealthier or even the ones that aren't, uh, if there's like good, you know, obviously you're not going to find reviews of them on Yelp, but maybe something like Glassdoor could be mm-hmm. uh, a good way to find out or some other system like that because I think it would be good to make sure that everyone's happy with these deals. Yeah, and I think one of the indicators is if you look at, you know, same as what you were talking about with Platika, um, you know, seriously was gone as an entity pretty quickly. Um, and same with a number of other companies. So EA for a while had a very bad reputation for that. They get absorbed into the EA Borg and you're, you know, you're gone as, a, as an independent. But um, considering they've had 67 acquisitions since I think they really started uh, their acquisition somewhere around 2012 or 2014 when they were really started the, the full acquisition train. Um, but they've acquired 67 and they still have over 50 studios. So, you know, just the fact that they've, um, you know, that there are that many studios still as entities as part of this overall family kind of speaks to two things, I think. One, that keywords is, uh, you know, probably done a good job of identifying a really good partner for them. Um, and a strong partner and something that uh, um, is able to be part of that larger organization and doesn't lose its own identity. Uh, and I think keywords is kind of, uh, you know, done a good job of keeping, maybe keeping their hands off a little bit, you know, here's, here's our overall goals, but we're not going to make you part of the, the keywords board um, and, and, and let the studios have their own identity. Cool. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on it and, and, and keep a little more of a spotlight, I think, on that company than uh, probably we had in the past. But uh, let's check out what's going on with Tears of the Kingdom. Zelda game, everyone's playing? Everyone's playing it. I, so as of recording, it's surpassed 10 million sales, 
right? And so that's pretty crazy. Four million in the US, 10 million overall. A lot, lot of really interesting mechanics about it. For, for one, it is really interesting to see the breakout of the hardware versus digital copies of the game, and that's sort of like the X, the, the growth there. It's the fastest selling Zelda game of all time. You know, really doubling down on a lot of people's expectations around IP, which is always fun to look at and and to understand. Uh, I personally think the most interesting thing is the lack of backlash on fidelity. Right. I think one of the things that we see, especially in AAA development, is this obsession with fidelity as a be all end all. When's the PlayStation 6 coming out? When the PlayStation 5 just, I finally got one. It took three years, but I finally got one. Right. And so it's one of those interesting notes where strong IP, good game design, good distribution uh, really lends itself to a successful launch, as opposed to, you know, there were some, I wouldn't call them haters, I would call them more disinterested people who are saying this is just a really expensive DLC because it hasn't changed the core mechanics. But there's sort of a beauty in having similar core mechanics. People like that familiarity. They like the ability to, you know, iterate on on, on top of their skills. And so it's a really fun game. Uh, I've had a chance to play a bunch of hours of it. I plan to play a bunch more this week. And then I think at least, you know, some somewhere in the ballpark of millions of people probably not 10 million. i'm sure there's someone who's bought like 20 copies for themselves but like you know some millions number of people seem to agree for the time being how do you think this fares in terms of like late stage uh for a console compared to like say like late stage wii things like that because like switch is kind of getting a little long in the tooth right and i, I mean how does this compare to how they typically fare when they release a game this late into one of their console cycles yeah, the console cycle that we've historically seen that would be reflective of this would be Majora's Mask for Endo 64 is probably the last time we've seen this late into console cycle release of game. You know, that predates our mental models around DLCs, that predates our mental models, a lot of things. They actually did push the edge of Den 64. Um, this is sort of a blast for the past or maybe a blast from prior to some of the people who are listening to this were born. But in the N64, they actually had to ship a hardware component that expanded the RAM, like literally expanded the RAM by a few more megabytes in order to support Majora's Mask. This, I think, is more indicative of what we've seen trend lines-wise with Grand Theft Auto, right? We see games where you can take the engine, really iterate on game design, such that even on the console side, you don't have to worry about the stage of the console's life cycle and care more about, hey, what's an interesting experience you ship out there? And perhaps that'll actually lend itself more to the type of development that we've been seeing and we enjoy seeing, especially as game players. I wanted to ask you, Seb, about um, Tears of Kingdom just outpacing, uh, at least from a physical copy perspective, Hogwarts Legacy. Because I look at Hogwarts and Harry Potter, is transmedia, is linked to, to my childhood. And I guess I didn't expect Legend of Zelda to play more into the hearts of the existing player base? Like, what makes Legend of Zelda so special? Yeah, it's almost certainly generational at this point, in a similar vein as Hogwarts ought to be. I'd imagine we'll see more press and more pull-up and more push for it. Hogwarts Legacy appears to have targeted a far older generation of folks, like people who are, like, first-gen Hogwarts fans seem to be the car um, the core target demo. That's your like twenty four to thirty five year olds um, in that demo is really the target of the Hogwarts side. Whereas the other game that did about ten million copies in the first three days was Pokemon, to the surprise of no one. And now we're starting to look at IPs that go multi generation. To to you know harken back to Devin's 
old career in esports, like one of the fun things that we talk about is just, hey, it turns out it takes roughly a generation or two in order to get people to have like strong lock-in. And we're starting to see that happen with some of these more legacy IPs like Legend of Zelda. Like the first Legend of Zelda, I think, is older than three of the four people on this call, if I had to guess. And so, like, because I think the first one was like 19, I forget exactly when it was. It was like 1981, I want to say, or 79. Devin, how close am I? I I think you're probably close-ish in the year, but... Maybe not accurate on some of your other statements. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. I appreciate the compliment, <laughs> the subtle compliment. Yeah, there we go, buddy. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so I think that's been really helpful in terms of the generational push of some of these games. And we're starting to see that with Pokemon a little bit. Legend of Zelda certainly has it. I think Legend of Zelda has like 10 years on it. Mario has it for sure, <laughs> right, from a, from a transmedia standpoint. That's super helpful. The, the second idea, which I think is also really funny, It's just, honestly, the availability of Nintendo games. Nintendo has had one of the best distribution pipelines that we've ever seen. It continues to really grind along, ignoring what everyone else is doing in the world, doing, (laughs) ignoring battle passes, ignoring the idea of launching games in a game pass, just launching their hardware games once in a while and hoping for the best. And it seems to, they've seemed to have hit the formula that's worked for 20-some years. Will continue to work for at least for the next five to ten. Yeah, and they certainly have been, you know, known actually right from almost the beginning of really pushing big franchises at the end of the lifespan of a particular console. Uh, all proved that I was the one that Seb was uh, suggesting was the really old person that uh, certainly was <laughs> around before Zelda. And uh, and give the example of uh, Donkey Kong Country on the SNES as being like a game that really, really pushed things at the end uh, and, and sold huge copies and you know, really taking advantage of uh, a large install base for the platform. Yeah, definitely take advantage of, uh, especially when you don't have the weird like, oh, we've got to try and push this on the next gen and the previous gen, kind of weird stuff that both uh, Xbox and PlayStation have seemed to kind of go through roughly. Uh, yeah. You know, where they had issues like with, with cyberpunk and stuff like that, whereas Nintendo's like, no, we're just going to make it for the current gen with the tech we have make it really nice and not worry about all these weird things that everyone else is running into. So, yeah. And I think the the funny part for me is that, you know, Nintendo's always really been known for uh, gameplay over visuals. And the only time that they've really had a super unsuccessful platform was when they really tried to outpace technology uh, and, and introduce uh, what was the, what was the proper name of that? The virtual boy or the virtual. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> The, the all red v, uh, VR yeah, that was a, boy. Uh, uh, a bit I don't of, know, man. It still holds up. I was just I was just playing it not too long ago. <laughs> That's excellent. So you have what twenty five percent of the available you know number of consoles yeah, that are in pretty, use right now. Pretty much at this point, I got I got to use the old and the new VR at the same time just to make sure I keep things in context. Yeah, I think the old Virtual Boy had some massive percentage of causing either seizures or nausea. So, you know, perhaps gameplay really is the, the answer. for. Well, for see, that. later they had to add the reminders to, on the Wii to, for you to go out and like, you know, go play, touch grass, whatever. Whereas the Virtual Boy just did it for you. You have a headache after 30 minutes. <laughs> you know what to do. Easy solution. Yeah. I, think, I think you're generous there. Just, I have better. I guess I have a better tolerance. But anyway, speaking of, uh, of, of old things that stick around forever and never seem to go away. Uh, Amazon 
and their quest for the everlasting MMO here. Wow. Burn, Devin. Such a burn. So um, I love bringing topics within topics. And so I broke this down into three topics. Uh, and so I just thought it would be good to start with an overview of Amazon games because a lot has happened in the past couple of years. And it will contextualize like some of the conversations that, that we'll have. So they announced New World in 2016. There is a graveyard of cancelled games, which um, you know made a lot of the industry judge Amazon games in doubt if they could release uh, a good game. And then they released New World uh, late 2021. That was an initial success with amazing concurrent players. And so it came to demonstrate that, okay, yeah, Amazon can make a good MMO. And they build up the experience with that. Then they published Lost Ark in early 2022. That was yet another success, which showed to the market, hey, Amazon games can do a really good job at publishing games that have massive complexity. And then in late 2022 and early 2023, I don't know if you remember, but there was just like this stream of news that kept on coming. So um, they're going to publish the next Tomb Raider game from Crystal Dynamics and Bandai Namco's Blue Protocol. Amazon Prime is developing a Tomb Raider TV series. They're publishing another MMO from NCSoft. And the studio head, John Smedley, if that's how I pronounce it, um, he left uh, after nearly six years of going up and down. And when that happened, I know that we discussed here on the podcast of, does this mean Amazon Games is just going to stop developing games? Or are they going to focus, and, and they're going to focus on their proven success of publishing games. And Amazon kept reminding us of, no, no, we're really going to develop games because we're good at it and we know how to do it. And so um, I was proven wrong because I really thought that Amazon was going to focus on publishing. So I have to eat my own sock here a little bit. But I wanted to um, ask you all, maybe Dave, starting with you, like, sorry, as you're taking a sip of your cup, this is when I ask you a question. <laughs> I was wondering, like, were you surprised? that Amazon is still going to continue developing games? I'm not too surprised. I, I really did think that they do see the value, especially when you, you know, as you talked about doing uh, Tomb Raider across both the game and uh, the TV series, you know, really looking at this as an opportunity for cross media. Um, you know, I, for me, the, the funny joke is always that Amazon or Jeff Bezos was able to, actually do the rocket science first and before actually shipping a successful game, um, proving that games is harder to do than rocket science. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I actually did expect that, that Amazon would try to continue on um, because it is a potential source for that uh, cross media uh, material. You know, like we're seeing a lot of, Games having an, another run at uh, you know the world of movies and, and TV series, and um, I, I do think that Amazon sees that as a large opportunity, not just for games themselves, but for creating cross cross media uh, IP. Yeah, I, I think what makes me a bit more confident in their skills to execute is that it is an MMO. They have built and released an MMO, and looking at the downward trend of the player base of New World, I assume that they're going to utilize a lot of the team to just move on to this new project and continue with new world in live ops but they won't keep trying to trying to grow it because it down it's just downwards since since they released it 
And so moving on to the second topic, it's also about IP strategy. So Embracer Group, their current growth strategy as IP-driven transmedia. And we've discussed a lot on the podcast that the model of growth by acquisition just has not delivered organic growth. It was already unsustainable, but now even more so with the hike of interest rates and also with their stock just losing valuation. But as they were on their shopping spree, what they were doing was creating like this treasure trove of IPs. And we have things like Tomb Raider, Lord of the Rings, this X, Borderlands, uh, Hellboy, Umbrella Academy, and the list just keeps going on. And they have the ability to essentially deliver transmedia by having digital game development, physical game development, and also what seems to be a cozy relationship with Amazon at this point. And so I think for the first time, I'm actually increasingly bullish about the future of Embracer because the IP strategy is already competitive. And I think it will just become even more competitive over time. And they are building like this treasure chest of IPs that live in people's hearts, um, the generation that we're talking about, and also IPs where a generation is now handing down their love for the IP to their, to their kids and you know nephews, nieces, whoever. And I think what I just want to reinforce a little bit why the IP strategy, I believe, is incredibly strong now. So it creates a FOMO, an existing FOMO in players because they're already connected to like the IP community and they're going to see their peers engaging with the experience and they want to jump in. And we, ch- we touched on two games that do that, um, Tears of Kingdom and Hogwarts Legacy. And then from a brand strategy is also leveraging an existing emotional connection. And we've also talked a lot about in this podcast that there's just a scarce attention economy right now. And so if you give players a choice between playing a game or spending time with an IP that they love or trying to fall in love and discover a new IP, it's the existing IP that's going to win. And then another thing that I think could really play into Embracer's future is that a single IP can lead to a lot of opportunities and mitigate the risk. Because just from the Lord of the Rings IP, we see that they're developing five games plus the new game, I assume. And they say that by March 2024, these five games are going to be released. So probably not the big MMO that's going to take at least six to seven years to to develop. But you can already see with their investment, they have a lot of games being developed. And that also means that they can kind of like outsource the game development and not have to take on the overhead of the costs, which like is always that we we never quite understood is how do you manage the integration and the org structure of all of these companies together? And so another question I have for you all, maybe now I'll pick on Seb. So I wanted to hear, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on Embracer's IP-led growth strategy? Do you think it will deliver a prosperous future to Embracer? There's a lot to unpack there. So, so sorry for the beginning. I certainly think that if you think, like there's this great quote, right? From, I want to say is Thomas Watson, but could be someone else, right? They said something along the lines of, hey, this employee made a mistake that cost a company a million dollars. And are you going to fire that guy? And he's like, no, I just spent a million dollars investing into training up this employee. Why would I, why would I fire them now? And certainly that does ring true for a lot of these new applications, both on the IP side as well as on the company side. 
Embracer, Amazon, people with the ability to deploy capital and then use the capital to generate interesting edges from a user acquisition standpoint are cool, right? So there is an interesting approach where we can generate those users. It is not the case that they're ever going to be purely organic initially. Like the organic nature of those users was by definition non-existent up until they have a real game and then it causes some like um, cross-promotion either that goes beyond the core nature of the IP. Is it the best way for them to acquire users? That is super unclear, right? Because I think the definition of best and whether it's like a path forward is often a function of ROI. It's like, hey, if you put a dollar in, does it print out $2? That is something we won't know. And more importantly, if you're judged as if it prints out $2 and something else prints out $3, is $3 better than $2? That's going to be even harder to disentangle. What I will say is that I do think it has a very solid shot of printing out $2. Now, I think the interesting thing there is similar to sponsoring sports stadiums. It's unclear if there's value in running a Super Bowl ad. However, it's very clear that a bunch of people will watch the Super Bowl. And I think in a similar vein, it's unclear if the Embracer Group's games will generate the type of returns they need to overcome their costs relative to the acquisition IP and the pricing that it had, especially in the last couple of years. But certainly, it will generate the type of like user acquisition necessary to test the thesis. So that, I think, is a far more, what's the word I'm looking for? Verbose, I suppose, way of describing the situation, but one that I have a lot of confidence in. If you don't know what to do and you have a lot of money and you're making interesting games, Partnering with Tomb Raider is not a bad idea. Partnering with Pokemon is never a bad idea. That, I think, is one of the core cruxes of things. And it's just a different return profile than other people. If you are a startup where your goal is to generate outsized returns for like 10x or 100x, that ecosystem and that equation may not actually work for your company because you might be just barely eking by in terms of ROI. But if you are a company at scale... You know, tossing a billion dollars into something and generating $1.1 billion is $100 million, right? As opposed to if you're a startup, you toss a thousand bucks into something, you make a hundred bucks. That I think is like probably the largest scale difference. And there is this uh, maybe a little bit more economic base, but there's this like myth that economies of scale work at all points. And that's just like not true. Economies of scale typically break down at some point. Like it's just one of those things where if you buy, the first um, like Snorlax cup making device. Yeah, the device's fixed cost will decrease up until you make so many Snorlax cups that actually you are like increasing the market overall, right? And suddenly like you now own all the ceramics in the world and you're buying it from every country and like now the fixed costs are going up. And so one of the things that we haven't seen in gaming over the last few years and something that we've been really pushing on is where do the economies of scale end for gaming? Does it end at like billion dollar companies? Does it end at $10 billion companies? Does it end at $100 billion companies? Or does it end at $10 million companies? And I think that disentanglement is going to be really interesting to see if we have, if that works out for Embracer as they push the edges of the economies of scale language. I got a question for you on that then. We're just related exactly to what you're saying is uh, if, if they're going IP led, right? So we, we've seen over the last like decade or so, Disney just burn out some of their IP, right? Where like everyone's got Marvel fatigue. There was a bit of Star Wars fatigue. They, they take these IPs, right? Because they spend so much money on them. They're trying to then churn out that two or $3 as much as possible. And there's, there's also the situation with, like you said, the economies of scale 
where I wonder if if your audience is overlapping between all these IPs and you're like, we're going to push out a TV show or a movie and a game and a movie and a game. And even if the IPs are different, if the audience overlaps, are you potentially you know, creating burnout situations, putting out too many games uh, perhaps or too many movies that they can't consume all of that for that same audience and like get diminishing returns, even if you're changing up what IP it is? Yeah, I mean, diminishing returns are very true, right? One of the ironies of games, um, now that we have this like future world, like Reed Hoffman was famous for saying uh, a few years ago that his biggest competitor for Netflix wasn't HBO, but it was Fortnite. Ironically, it's like the reverse as well in gaming. Like the biggest competitor for Fortnite is honestly Netflix. A lot of times there's only 168 hours in the week. You only have so many things you can do and so many actions you can take. So certainly there are diminishing returns for IP-led things. One thing I will push on, especially on the Disney analysis, because I think that's a very common take, especially on Twitter, to say, hey, Disney's really, really like straining the golden goose, like really trying to get out as much as possible, is actually if those IP-led creations reach different audiences, even if they overlap 80%, you get an extra 20%, that might be worth it for Disney. And that might be worth it relative to the cost of capital required to generate that new IP. My great example of this is uh, this Clone Wars series, the anime Clone Wars series, specifically targeted towards children. It's like a 10 to 14-year-old target demo. I freaking love it. And I think it's been one of the like big cult hits among especially a generation of folks that they didn't expect it to reach to. And that we see over and over again as being interesting. Now, do we need 17 more Mandalorian spinoffs? Probably not. But maybe, according to Maria, if you guys are watching on YouTube, the answer is yes. <laughs> so clearly, our difference uh, indicates, whereas Maria and I typically overlap in our consumption patterns, Maria is willing to consume 17 more Mandalorian things, and I'm yes. done after season three. This is the way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wanted to say that I believe what the next step of the IP um, bonds will be is that there is the, the big risk of the IP burnout. But that will just mean that we'll take it into another level down. Your allegiance is not only with an IP, but it's with a specific character of the IP. And this is why I find interesting about something that Embracer alluded to. It's you're no longer building uh, Lord of the Rings IP. You're building, uh, you're building content for Gollum. You're building content for Legolas, Aragorn. And by that means, you're going to just target into your followers. And so... It's true. Like with Marvel, with uh, Star Wars, you don't engage with anything. Sorry, with everything. I love the Mandalorian. I didn't love and Andor. Is that the name? I don't even know the name. Anyway, um, but I have friends. I was the complete opposite, and I think that will just be the the next step for these big IPs. It does make me question of the value growth of the generational IPs. Like, can a new IP even reach this level of following? Anyway, that's probably a rhetorical question. Yeah, I mean, it's, the answer is yes, but like it's just a like, it's just a question of like time, scale, and life, and a bunch of other things. Luck. I, there are some people who actually argue the answer is no, Maria. As an aside, I, I think there are some really interesting voices who say you can never reach the type of IP scale ever again. But I've heard people talk ad nauseum about Bruno, ad nauseum about Frozen. There does seem to be some ability to get to scale and scope at some point in the future. Certainly, we'll we'll see what happens with Doctor Who and Star Trek as well. Um, well I was just going to say, for me, the interesting thing uh, in my mind is what what approach are they going to take with all the IP that they've created? 
or gathered. So is it going to be the uh, Capcom route where they revisit their Resident Evil games, remake them, and end up selling more than they did the first time they released them? Uh, or are they going to you know, treat it more as a universe and create new games, new characters inside a particular universe? Um, I think for me, I would probably approach it as a, well, let's, let's actually do both. It depends on the actual game and where they see the audience. But for me, it'll be interesting to see what, what they actually do with those. I know we got to move on, but this is one of the funnier things I was looking into this week, which is the 2002 350 Nissan Z is worth like two to three X MSRP at this point. And part of it is because the people who were teenagers and looking up to the type of cars um, that were like really awesome 2002 are now in their like late 30s, early 40s and have disposable income. And suddenly this car that they've always wanted, which by all accounts is not a very safe nor nor like the best car in the world. And the engines in them are probably all screwed up given the driver profile of a 350Z driver. But that is like one of the most sought after cars in America right now. And so I think to your point, Dave, like there's some interesting IP iterations there where it's like, hey, who is your target generation of audience? People who... Uh, the opinion, the rating, the community, uh, the societal rating around the first Star Wars, three Star Wars movies. Sorry, the second three episodes one, two, and three. <laughs> the ratings around them have gone up massively over the last five to ten years as people have a lot of nostalgic value where they like love the Phantom Menace, whereas people who love four, five, and six hate the Phantom Menace. It's a really interesting cohort. Yeah, so uh, Google is trying to play competitor as well. With their AI and uh, and I guess giving it their best shot at this point. Yeah. So uh, as of recording, which is May seventeenth, May eleventh, so about a week ago now, Google released had their Google I/O conference, which is for those of you who are Apple stands, their WWDC. For those of you who are gaming stands, is their like GDC of types or E3 of types. Uh, real interesting conference. They announced a lot of their new Bard tooling for <clears throat> for their AI stuff. And irrespective of how you feel about BARD or about its implementation versus the stuff you see from OpenAI, and also how you feel about LoRa and some of the open source um, solutions that have come out from the Facebook leak and Lambda, what's really cool is when you see levels of competition that we hadn't seen historically. It's something that we don't give enough play to. If the mobile ecosystem, for example, was purely the App Store and didn't have Google Play, Although it's still a duopoly, so you can take it as you will. But if we didn't have those things, we'd have a lot of issues. And I think in a similar vein, we see that with Google I.O., we're going to continue to see competition, which is going to be useful for consumers and bring down the cost, hopefully, such that we can all use it. What do you think then of, of Sam Altman's recent appearance that almost kind of looked like he's going for a regulatory lock-in, maybe for him and Google, but it seemed like you know this first mover advantage thing uh, they're trying to lock that in, and, it, and maybe it is to shut out Google. Maybe it's to to just do it with Google. I mean, where where do we stand then on this that competition? You were just talking about a duopoly. Do we just get another duopoly from you know one of the the former ones, Google? It's possible. I mean, one of the fun things uh, to analyze Sam Altman's thing because I was reading the transcript this morning. Typically speaking, if you don't like what lobbyists will tell you is if you can't change their mind. You should help guide their ideas. And so there's one of two things that could be happening here, or it could be both, right? Sam Altman could be trying to do some form of regulatory capture because that's a really easy way to generate the type of monopolistic leads that they're looking for. 
Or it could be that he's done the research, he's talked to people in Congress, and they're all not going to come along with anything outside of this. And so it's just trying to stage them back and get them to the over the line. We don't know. The honest answer is that typically Congress is pretty bad at regulating new technology anyway. So I'm not, like they typically do something called creating laws of the horse, which is the idea that instead of trying to create generalized laws to account for the advancement of technology, they regulate the horse and suddenly all of our car rules and laws that are on the books are relative to horsepower of one horse, as opposed to never imagining a world where we have physical cars, right? And so that is typically what happens there. I am certainly not an expert when it comes to regulatory capture, nor am I an expert in terms of how to deal with Congress. I used to protest for net neutrality, and that was a pain in the butt. And I've realized I don't understand that world. So I'll defer to Dave and Maria if they have better ideas and better concepts there. I have a thought. So there's this um, company, I don't know how to call it, open source project called Hugging Face. And it's been all over my LinkedIn now. And it's about making the access to these tools and models, uh, essentially open source. And so the competitive advantage and building businesses around AI comes from context and being able to adapt those tools into your context. And so, you know, I'm interested in what Google is doing with BARD, but at the same time, we cannot allow these big tech companies to race away and build these walled off gardens with their technology. And so... I hope that with AI, you know, companies like Hugging Face. Um, anyway, that's that's my take. Let's 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 build with these open source models and accelerate and win the market by knowing how to apply the context. Yeah, for me, I think I've been looking at it a little bit more tactically in terms of uh, the actual usage of AI and a, a lot of the the potential challenges around it, uh, especially around IP ownership. So, if you are you know, potentially going to an AI uh, system to help generate imagery uh, for your game, what happens when you're looking to copyright your game? Uh, it's already been stated that uh, you can't copyright material that has been generated by AI. Um, so what does that mean? You know, you've, you've spent years toiling on a particular game and all, you know, someone's able to copy elements of it because it wasn't properly uh, secured. Um you know, I think there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, uh, questions around what does that mean for people inside the industry? And, and certainly I fall more on the side of using AI as a tool, uh, but certainly would prefer to have the artist teams around to help generate the art. What do you guys think then about the um, the way that these companies, uh, especially even Google during their, their presentation, uh, Google IO, of being kind of cautious in their approaches where they're trying to react to the fears people have like the example i would give is is google with the the watermarking of the images that it creates right so it's like where hey we're going to be proactive about trying to attack the things that people are afraid of these tools being used for but at the same time does that then open up more reason for the competition to exist that might not play as nice right where you know if everyone's like you know making guns with orange tips then the, then the company that wants to make the guns where you could take the orange tips off is suddenly like the the hot ticket in town because you know they're they're not being so proactive like do you think that's just them hoping to maybe we can curb this or uh i mean do you think they they can hold the line with that it's funny because what Dave and Maria are alluding to are actually often perceived to be diametrically opposing ecosystems, right? So 
the idea of enforcing copyright and trademark protections is far easier to do when there's a centralized person you can bug. It's much harder to trademark. It's much harder to enforce copyright if there's like 40 decentralized video services versus if you have a centralized content ID inside of YouTube. The flip side is that if you then cede power to the YouTubes, you disenfranchise a lot of the open source projects, which do not have the manpower or the desire to attack the problem properly. This is the central central tension that we see constantly when it comes to both startups as well as new technology. And partly why it's actually by either the cynical or the, I like to say, practical view, really hard to enforce in either direction. You just got to let it play out. And, and that's sort of what's going to almost certainly happen, which is that the functionality of Google will be respectful to IP and trademark and whatnot. But on the flip side, it will definitely not work out for everyone else. <laughs> like going, we might be respectful from a trademark and copywriting perspective, but not with your data. And like that's why I'm a massive cynical about these big tech companies. You, mm-hmm. can't, you can't look at what they're offering you. You have to look what's behind it. Yeah. And so the real takeaway there is we're going to have to make trade-offs societally. And the rule of thumb there is that societies don't make trade-offs. They just take what they <laughs> what they want, right? And so the people who care a lot more about their data privacy will use and push forward the lambdas, the like Lora, the the hugging faces, the stable, unstable diffusions of the world in order to like generate those tools to be 80, 90, 120% of what Google is doing. And then Google on the flip side is going to make the argument like, no, we we protect these other rights, and then we go from there. This always makes for a very messy and fun world. <laughs> well, you have the situation too, where some of these companies will throw out an open source version to try and kind of make good with everyone. I think that was mentioned uh, by Sam Altman as well, like wanting to do an open source version or something like that. And and we see, you know, even like, uh, it seems like Facebook, I don't want to call them meta, uh, sometimes does the the whole thing where they, they put out like nice open source tools and things like that, uh, whether they're doing it as a PR move or not. But it seems like that's kind of a common way to be like, oh, hey, no, it's fine. But it also seems sometimes to to smell a little bit of like the embrace and extend from from like the you know late 90s Microsoft kind of mentality. It, it's funky, man. What's weird is that I'm, I've, I've had the good fortune of knowing some of those open, uh, part of the open source free culture community. The, the people who are making the things don't have some malicious intent, right? A lot of like Google has a great team of folks in internal who really care about tooling and really care about privacy and really care about open source communities. Are they the majority of the people at Google? Probably not. Are they making their community ideas public as possible in order to try to stave off some negative externalities they sense? Probably. It It's just so hard. And I think this is one of the biggest issues I have with my own analysis. It's like, I anthropomorphize companies all the time and I make them feel good or bad in my own brain when in reality you have to like step back and remember these aren't people these are conglomerates they have thousands of different people with thousands of different ambitions and thousands of different opinions and we just have to deal with the consequence of what that melts itself into fair enough I guess I guess it's a very wait and see kind of situation right now, right? Like we're kind of in the eye, the eye of the storm right now. Uh, I imagine a lot of stuff's going to develop, but I I don't think we're going to go an episode where we don't talk about AI at least for for ten minutes uh, for a while, right? Uh, until should, we get to the point where that generates that topic for us, right? Should we talk about Activision Blizzard and are you approving the the deal? Am I approving it or is? 
Sebastian. You, the, the, oh, you, you anyway, the deal. It was a joke because we talk about it in every episode. <laughs> yes, anyway, that's true. We, I think we that almost, joke did not land well. <laughs> almost got into it again. Wait, 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 wait. We need to also talk about Metaverse. Yes. Web3. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I already missed those topics. I think we're going to have to, those, much like the generational IP we were talking about, we're going to have to make a comeback. Like 10, 20 years from now, we're going to be buying all the nostalgic Web3 Metaverse stuff. From now. Hey, you know, the biggest sure. one is that we got to talk about Brexit because <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just saying if it wasn't for breakfast, their deal would be approved. But because of Brexit, the UK vetoed it. And now it's a complete, it's a different country. <laughs> it all comes down to Brexit, guys. <laughs> the open source version of it. No, we're not talking about Brexit. Let's move on. I've spent too many years of my life. <laughs> Speaking about cooperation and interoperability <laughs> and everything, we want to talk about cross-platform. Wow, fiery transition. Um, yeah, so this is actually uh, kicked off by uh, NewZoo releasing a report around uh, PC and console gaming uh, for 2023. And they released a, a section on, on cross-platform uh, cross players. For me, this actually you know, piqued my interest and, and wanted to dive into it a little bit because we're really starting to see a lot more interest in true uh, cross-platform play. Um, you know, a little bit earlier over the you know last few years, it's certainly been a case of traditionally console and PC companies buying up mobile game companies. You know, Take Two buying Zynga, uh, you know, Microsoft trying to buy Activision Blizzard King in order to get a hold of uh, the the mobile games that uh, the King has there. Um, but now we're also starting to see mobile game companies uh, adding PC and, and potentially console uh, to their portfolio. So examples being Scopely uh, with their Star, uh, Star Trek Fleet Command being available not only on mobile, but also on PC. Uh, and Kabam, uh, which you know, obviously everyone remembers, started off uh, with Facebook and with and mobile, um, has now you know, gone a little bit full circle and, and has really gone to, uh, and they're now adding PC. Uh, into their uh, portfolio mix so now with their uh, newly announced King Arthur title. Um, so a little bit of a general facts, just kind of set the table a little bit. Um, you know, part of the reason I think why there's certainly an interest in, in trying to get uh, a, a full spectrum of players, uh, you know, being uh, fans of a company's games and their IP is that uh, there are over 2.5 billion mobile game players. There's around 1.1 billion PC players and somewhere in the range of 610 million console players. So, you know, those are some pretty big numbers. And if you are in one camp, you know, mobile games, this is an opportunity for you to bring in almost an additional, um, you know, 100% uh, or you know, 60, 70% at least, uh, more players uh, to your your potential TAM. Um, and so they, they actually dove into it and looking at what those overlaps were in terms of where players were spending their time on mobile or on console or on PC and, and really what that overlap looked like. And so some interesting bits for me is that, you know, the top overlap was actually mobile and PC players. Um, but it was closely followed by what they were referring to as the tri-platform player. So these are people that play on mobile and on console and on PC. Um, but, you know, the, at least 72% of the players uh, were playing on multiple platforms. So 
Uh, and, you know, obviously not surprising going along with people playing on, on multiple platforms. It shows that they uh, those players have an increase in the amount of time that they spend playing uh, the games, as well as an increase in the amount that they're spending on the games. Um, and the other, for me, interesting bit is that the, the cohort of players uh, that did have this cross-platform play uh, were more male skewing and they were younger skewing. Uh, than what you see in terms of the, the traditional audiences where there's just one platform they're playing. Um, and adventure being probably the, the number one genre. Um, and they're most likely to point to social as a key aspect of play. So um, I think if you look at, and this is where also part of the interest comes from, some of the games that have been really successful recently are things like Roblox and Fortnite. Games that have been uh, you know, celebrated as the fact that you can play them on any platform. Uh, Fortnite, maybe you need to, you know, side load it or, or stream it another way in order to play on mobile these days. But, um, you know, their games are really successful. It didn't matter. Uh, players didn't care what platform they were playing on. They just wanted to engage with the content. I got a, I got a question on, on that topic with yeah. the, the mobile to PC kind of crossover. So like we saw a push a little while ago, right, of like mobile games starting to kind of bring some of their stuff over. And I feel like some of that was uh, like more mid-core games starting to gain traction on mobile. But we've also seen like the reverse where people are going from PC to mobile, as you mentioned. And, and I start to wonder, is that like also because the quality of games on mobile are starting to reach like console level or PC level. So we get this interesting situation where if consoles got like, or I mean, a uh, mobile's got console level quality people come in through that and then they feel more comfortable moving over to pc and vice versa do you think that like just the maturity of mobile as a platform has made it more of a bridge to other platforms than it used to be i do think that there is more acceptance in terms of uh mobile being a capable visual platform um if you look for example the games that netease does with the unreal engine i mean those those are some really beautiful looking games um, and, you know, we had the prior conversation about whether or not PlayStation versus Nintendo, was that about gameplay or was that about visual fidelity? And, you know, for the Nintendo, it's about gameplay. So I, I do think that the acceptance level in terms of being able to generate high fidelity visuals on mobile, yeah, they're certainly showing that, yes, they can now. Uh, the horsepower is there. The visual uh, quality is there. Um uh, but I, I do think that it still comes down to the type of gameplay. And so if you look at, you know, as I mentioned, you know, adventure titles were the titles that did, uh, were, the, were the more popular ones that crossed the genres. If you think about it, they're usually typically fairly simple controls, like you're moving around, you have your basic actions, um, but there isn't like a huge amount beyond that. They're not super complex controls where you can be successful in controlling that on a mobile with two virtual sticks uh, and being able to bring that experience across to the, to the, um, uh, to the controllers, Xbox and, and PlayStation controllers or the mouse keyboard. Um, but, you know, you're not going to be able to get that same sort of level of control. If you're playing, you know, a huge fan of flight sim for Microsoft you're not going to be able to play that on on the uh, on mobile, um, but it, it really for me was interesting to also look at it from if we are moving to this this time when we're trying to get uh, games across multiple platforms at the same time, are we going to have some challenges that I saw when when free to play and mobile was first introduced, where you had 
console developers going, well, I'm staying away from those things because mobile sucks. Uh, you know, I don't like free to play as a business model. Um, but it's, you know, are they going to have a, the understanding of the intricacies of creating games that are compelling to mobile players versus PC players versus console players? You know, that sense of uh, on mobile, I'm going to commit myself for 30 seconds to play something versus on console, you're probably going to commit yourself for half an hour, an hour at the bare minimum. Um, it, it does seem like mobile, though, has been able to pick up like longer social engagement like that it used to. Because uh, doing social on mobile used to be like a really difficult thing. And I feel like that kind of limited, like MMOs, for example, not not being successful in the earlier days. And now MMOs are, are you know, a lot more prevalent. And even like social stuff, um, you know, like when uh, Machine Zone started doing the more social stuff with the 4X games. And, mm-hmm. you know, Rise of the King, Rise of Kingdoms is now like a, it's a pretty social game for being a city building game, right? And, and I got to imagine like the keyboards haven't got better on the phones, right? We, we're not like uh, everyone's not BlackBerry level skill. Uh, so that hasn't changed. Uh, what do you think it is that's gotten people more comfortable with spending longer periods of time, like being social or even, even the running their phones with like these, these uh, MMOs that autoplay, like a lot mm-hmm. of the Asian ones that have like, you just hit autoplay and you just have it just sitting there plugged in. Like you're just watching it or playing it through a simulator on your uh, computer. Like, what's changed that that's made these longer sessions okay? Um, I think there's a few different aspects. Like on the social side, um, there is the the acceptance of different types of communication. So, um, like some great examples. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, there's a mobile golf game. I'm trying to remember which one it is exactly. But golf clash. You have, golf clash. I think it is. It, you have the ability to say things like great shot, you know, uh, uh, you know, tough luck, or, you know, you have those abilities to have those little micro conversations between each other um, and allow them to be, you know, completely respectful. Um, and one of the best things about them is because, you know, what you're saying you can translate them across multiple languages and you have that ability to communicate with anyone around the world. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it's that same levels, you know, being able to obviously sit there on your keyboard and mash away, you know, huge novels in, in, inside the, the, the text boxes as you converse with each other. But, um, you know, I think that they do try to find what is an acceptable level of communication to still bring that sense of connection between your players. Um, I'll be honest, I don't play a ton of MMOs on mobile, so I'm not the best person to specifically talk about that. But, uh, um, for me, it's going to be interesting to see how well, uh, you know, people are able to look at um, finding those types of games that do well across platforms, uh, regardless of the, the control interface um, and, and, you know, being able to feel like you're actually able to play on a, on a same playing field. Like, you know, I think there are a lot of people that feel like an RTS, the fact that you're able to have uh, hockey shortcuts for building and for selecting units certainly makes it easier to play on with a mouse and keyboard than it does on a mobile uh, interface. Was there, was there anything about xCloud factoring into this? Because that then allows the same game, for example, to be played with the same controller across console, mobile, and computer uh, without you know needing to really even change anything. Uh, they didn't reference um, sort of what the delivery platform was. Um, and I think... Um, I think the numbers are starting to get there for something like like that. Like I'm a, I love Game Pass and I have all you know, the ultimate Game Pass. I love being able to play any of my games anywhere on any platform. Um, but uh, yeah, they didn't reference the actual uh, delivery platforms. 
think there are a few a few things uh, at play here. Um, one, uh, Genshin Impact just came to destroy all barriers of thought of what you couldn't do on mobile and just open the floodgate of the incoming AAA mobile games. Another aspect of um, companies investing more in building on the mobile platform is that certain areas, like regions of the world, um, people don't have money or it's not common to have like a, a PC even more so like a gaming PC. And so having a mobile game allows you to tap into that, that market. Um, and then another thing is, I think a lot of game mobile gaming companies now are looking at web, so the full circle that they were saying because um, of the platform fees and with the squeeze that we have from IDFA and the future squeeze of the Google, Google privacy changes is that you can you can actually increase your profit and with the same amount of spend that you got of redirecting players into a platform where you don't have to take such a cut from from your revenue. Um, And then I think another thing at play is that the games on mobile have just become increasingly complex and increasingly complex in genres that monetize really well. And so, for example, that's why we see Call of Dragons, like the next stage of Rise of Kingdoms, actually really focus on a a PC client where mobile is more of a gateway and a way to stay connected with your clan and doing all the little things I need to do throughout the day. But actually the main gameplay is optimized to be played um, with more detail and ease on, on the PC. And so I think PC and mobile are very linked together. I'd be curious to see, I don't know, I haven't read Newsu's report. I'm curious about the country mix because I would expect cross-platform to be more prevalent between PC and mobile due to accessibility, but also to be focused on countries where PC gaming is quite popular. Because, And I think that's why maybe we see a demographics mix, because uh, some, like, some significant percentage of the female player base still doesn't consider themselves as gamers, as some reports have, have shown. And so you have your mobile, you install your, your games on your mobile, but going to spend $1,000 on a PC game, sorry, a PC desktop, is that how you just, I, I don't even know, I don't have one, <laughs> to, to play super hyper-realistic FPS games. Uh, yeah, we're still not there yet. Yeah, and uh, they, they actually did call out... Um, Something that I thought was interesting was that if you look at where uh, the different regions inside uh, the world, um, how their gaming cultures evolved. So if you look at the starting points, um, North America, very much a console uh, in terms of its beginnings. Yes, there were PC and that, but you know it was the consoles were the things that kids wanted. Uh, in Europe, uh, PC-based. Uh, and then uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, um, mobile. Um, and if you look at the report and they say, well, what is your preferred platform to play on? That's still the case. The only country, the only major region that I saw that had any difference, uh, was actually Japan. So starting off console and as they've transitioned to mobile, but otherwise everyone stayed exactly the same. North Americans, if they have a choice, they still want to play on console. Europeans, they still want to play on the PC and Southeast Asia, they would prefer uh, mobile. But I do think that in part what you're saying, Maria, it does also come down to what is available for them to play. But uh, yeah, I I, I do think that there is a challenge in terms of being able to figure out who's the audience and what is it that they're playing? Because they do talk about cross-platform play, but how much of that is 
uh, I'm playing Roblox on mobile, on PC, and on console, or how much of it is I'm playing Candy Crush on mobile, I'm playing uh, Flight Sim X on my PC, and I'm playing FIFA soccer, uh, football, fo- football club now, I guess, uh, EA Football Club on, uh, on the Xbox or PlayStation. Um, for me, that's one part that they didn't get into in the report, and that would be my my curiosity in terms of how they're actually playing or what it is that they're playing on each of the platforms. Yeah, it'd be really nice if NewZoo reports had cross tabs, uh, but unfortunately, I guess the <laughs> the sample size they have makes it hard for them to provide any interesting cross tabs. And Devin, to your answer about mobile gaming becoming more social, I think I'm a mobile game forever kind of girl. Um, and I think something that mobile games did really well is that when you're playing on PC, for example, you're typing really long messages. To become social, you have to type. You have to write what you mean. And what I love about mobile games is that over time, they've created socialization without actually... That was a really loud bike passing next to my house. And socialization without having to type. So with these small features that make you feel connected, make you feel that you're working towards a common purpose, but you don't actually have to type. I guess it makes you wonder then if AI eventually becomes a factor in there in like expanding that level of communication on uh, things like that. Because we also have like issues with, you know, emotes which were brought up earlier like in a lot of games for example uh positive emotes become toxic emotes and things like that because whether that be language barriers or just culture shifts over time and things like that like i've seen that in marvel snap for example right the thumbs up is just like the most toxic thing in the game even though it's a thumbs up uh that's like the old ggs in like hearthstone and and it's it's interesting that like you talk about like the reduced amount of communication being a positive, but there's also like the, the dark side to that, right? Which is uh, the lack of context and extra information. Like I find myself in those situations on mobile where I, I wish I could type something, uh, like I say in that Marvel Snap kind of situation where I, if there's not an emote that expresses what I want to say, I either have to like do something close and hope they get it. Or I just have to be like, well, I just, I can't say anything to this person that I'll never see again. And I hope they just telepathically understand what I wanted them to understand. Uh, and so it becomes the thing, like, I mean, like, like I said, uh, Machine Zone, like pushed this whole idea of like typing stuff out and it being auto-translated and this, like pushing that forward. And, uh, and I, you know, I still see like those chat boxes and a lot of these MMOs, even if they're just kind of light AR, ARPG MMOs, stuff like that. So it, it definitely seems like it's a mixed audience in that sense, right? Where you've got the people that are very like, I'll use the social features that are indirect communication. And then the people that are like, I'm comfortable typing. I will type that on here, especially the people that write are, are playing on like, uh, emulators and stuff on their computer where they could just type. Cause I've definitely got like, those situations you brought up like rise of kingdoms and moving to PC earlier when I was trying out the game, like I found myself like, uh, okay, I'm going to play this on PC now because first off I can't type very well on here, uh, because it's small. And second off, like there's a lot of reading and small numbers and juggling all this stuff and also playing it for long periods of time. It's going to kill my phone battery. So like, I'll just play it on the side on my computer and uh, it, it, so it's 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 interesting that like there's definitely games that start pushing that transition as well, whether it be for social reasons or for complexity or whatever it is. And uh, I I don't know how that translates then over to console because console is kind of in like in a weird. You don't usually have a keyboard hooked up, but like you're, you're not usually using like emotes the same way. You've got like chat wheels most of the time instead, right? You've got like the the whole wheel of emotes. So it's I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird mix of all these different. Uh, things that I imagine will just bridge into something that's kind of more universal through those systems. I'm just worried about using AI for part of that because autocorrect is bad enough as it is. 
AI just going off on some bizarre tangent in terms of, no, no, no. All I was trying to say was thank you, not whatever, you know, AI has decided to throw up on a screen instead and wish them that they had the best of luck and hopefully they saw the coronation in person and yes, watch out for the giraffe down the street. I don't know. I, I just enjoy communicating uh, entirely in GIFs instead. So what can I say? If AI makes it easier to pick out the right GIF, I'm, I'm solid. Cool. Well, great conversations, everyone today, a lot of good topics, and I'm sure some will, we will revisit in the near future. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being here today. And of course, everyone for listening. And also another reminder about the old mailbag. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we're getting those emails from you at podcast at novic.co. So make sure to shoot those out. Even if it's just a nice message to say hi, we appreciate that too. Uh, but anyways, we will see you all next week. Uh, have a great weekend in the meantime. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.